Well, as we think about those weaknesses that um, Damaris just so ably spoke to us about and how the Lord can use them for the means of His power and His grace, what we see this morning in the text of Scripture is that the Lord takes what must be the low point in human history, the flood and its judgment, and He turns it into a place of His glorious power and strength as He speaks covenant promises into the life of us, His people. Let's give attention to God's Word beginning in Genesis chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 20 and we'll extend through verse 17 of chapter 9. This is God's word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the earth and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth. And multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and a bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh 
that is on the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, just as we say those precious promises that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever, we have come today to listen to that ever-standing word. We've come, we have come here to know it because we need its sure foundation and we need its power in truth, spirit, and hope. We would ask, Lord, that you would grant it to us in great measure now as we sit here before your word and in your presence. Come to the power of your Holy Spirit now and make this passage sing as we seek to give you the glory that is due to your name in receiving this word in order to be transformed by it. Come and meet with us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage of Scripture speaks to us of some of the rich mysteries that we find in the Scriptures. Last week, we had the privilege of hearing another rich passage of Scripture from the Psalms from our dear brother, Dr. Jonathan Gibson. Many of you, I know, were here to sit under his preaching of the Word of God. We were blessed deeply as we dug into the sweet truths of Psalm 84, and we learned about the promises of God and his gifts to us in hope as we approach moments of suffering and maybe even the deepest and darkest moments of death, which we've already talked about in the midst of this service. And one of the things we did during the Sunday school hour last week is discuss the very theme that we're going to dig into in more detail this morning in Genesis chapter 8 and 9, and that is the theme of covenant. As Dr. Jonathan Gibson and I were talking about the theme of covenant last week. We acknowledged with one, of the, uh, with one another that this theme holds together the very pages of Scripture. In fact, we could go so far as to argue that there is not a page of Scripture where the teaching of the reality of the doctrine of covenant is not present. Now, that's a strong statement to make, so let me prove it. Uh, the word for covenant is the word berit. We see it in the Hebrew multiple times throughout Scripture. Hundreds of times do we see the word used in Scripture, and most often at particular junctures in redemptive history, significant turning points like this one with regards to Noah. We see it again in a few chapters in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 with Abraham. We see it again in the opening of the book of Exodus with Moses. These key patriarchs, these key figures, these moments in redemptive history by which the Lord is doing something new. And the unfolding of His promises are taking a turn. We see covenant being displayed. But did you know that covenant is actually the way in which we should understand the whole of the Old Testament and the whole of the New Testament in relationship to one another? Because that word berit doesn't just stop in the Old Testament. It moves to the New Testament with the word diatheke. The word diatheke, this idea of covenant, shows itself in the pages of the New Testament, even as we will see in a second when Jesus, in his Last Supper, 
says and pours that glass of wine and says, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for many. And later, the writer of the book of Hebrews will tell us that the covenants of the Old Testament are all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees himself as the fulfillment of the covenant, this berit, this diatheke, but it's even deeper than that. Did you know that when you translate the word covenant into Latin, that the word is primarily translated as testamentum, from which we get the word testament, like Old Testament, like New Testament. In other words, the word Old Testament is the word Old Covenant. The word New Testament is the word New Covenant. So I'm not simply saying when I say covenant holds the pages of the Bible together that it's content within the Bible. It's actually the very structure by which the Bible itself is organized. You have, as it were, on your lap right now, the covenant of God. You have the document of legal binding power by which all truth and grace is displayed, revealed, and dispensed through the power of the Holy Spirit. When we come to the theme of covenant, we're not just talking about a theme. We're talking about maybe the most central theme of all. When we look into and what holds together the very pages of Scripture. Now that being the case, if you Understand and can see this is significant, not just as a theme, but also as a structure for the whole of the Bible. It would be pretty important that we understand what covenant actually means when we use the terminology. We talked a little bit about it in Sunday school last week, but let me just rehearse four things that we see within the nature of covenant so that we know that when we're looking at it in the Bible, that's what's going on whether we see the language or not. And I want to look at just a couple of definitions that are related directly to covenant to help you see how they're, they're connected. Look first at this quote from Gordon Hugenberger. He says, a covenant in its normal sense is a relationship of obligation under oath. A covenant in its normal sense is a relationship of obligation under oath. Daniel Lane writes, a covenant is an enduring agreement which defines a relationship between two parties. O. Palmer Robertson writes that a covenant is a bond in blood that is sovereignly administered. Now I want you to hear just in all of those definitions, and there are many that we could pull from, some key words. You hear language like bond, relationship, agreement, oath, promise, obligation, responsibility, vow. These are the terms, the constituent parts that make up this idea of covenant that holds the Bible together and of which the message of the Bible itself is unfolded. Those are key words. And what it is that you can hopefully feel and see in that language is that there's a seriousness about it. There's a binding nature to it. There's a legality 
to the structure of these words. Let me just give you an example of how this works in sort of normal life for us. We often are just simply in our conversations with one another, recounting facts and stories and details about life when we're quizzed about what's going on in the midst of our lives. This will happen right after we adjourn this morning and the benediction is pronounced. Many of you will step into the aisle and you'll begin talking about life on a number of fronts and you'll do so for many of you very freely. But if this was a courtroom setting and you had your hand on a Bible and you raised your right hand to give an oath that everything you said will be true, so help you God, you'd be more careful about what it is that you said because you understand the nature of those words as different than the ones that you're going to share after the benediction. There's a gravity to them. There's a legality to them. You know that someone's going to take record and hold you to account of the things of which is said. It has a binding, truthful nature to it. Well, in a very real sense, the whole Bible is God's sworn statement. It's a covenantal word from the Lord. It is something that is absolutely His self-revealing that has full authenticity and upholds complete legal weight. It is in covenant with you and with me. You can completely bank on it. And it defines the relationship that you and I have with the Lord. Each of the definitions that we just looked at talked about defining the relationship between the two parties. Now that's really important. We like to know what kind of relationships we're in. Maybe some of you in here are dating someone. And maybe some of you who are not dating someone and married can think back to when you were dating someone. Or some of you who are not married but have dated before can think back to when you dated someone. And think about the facts of how your mind constantly thinks about where are we in the relationship. This is particularly true for you women folk in the room. Sometimes in relationship to us men, it takes us a while to figure things out. You're eager to know from us, where are we exactly? Are we dating? Is this moving along? At what point is it at? And why is she asking that question? Because she wants to know, can I give my heart to you? I want to be really careful with where we are. I don't want to get too excited or too committed in the nature of this relationship unless I know where the relationship has been defined. Some of you have been in negative relationships. Right? Where you had a relationship with someone and then something happened, and that relationship, through its negative happening, indicated you didn't have the relationship you thought you had. You lost that relationship, and then the pain of that relationship came. And one of the things that you'll constantly think and oftentimes regularly say is, I thought we were X. And you'll use a category for the relationship. And based upon the conduct, you're now drawing the relationship that you misdefined the nature of that relationship. These experiences in our life teach us that we are a people who really want to know with clarity where we stand. God, in His Word, is giving to you a covenant document to define His relationship with you. 
And he's doing that with Noah. He's doing that with Noah's descendants. And he's doing that with all of his people throughout history from Genesis chapter 9. Now we see that because the various aspects of the covenant are well at play in this passage. For instance, we have a binding formal agreement. That's one of the parts of a covenant. He comes and he says in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. He's come to establish a binding covenant with Noah. But what is included within a covenant? An oath. He's making a vow, a promise. And he's doing so with a sense of obligation that he must carry through on this promise. Very often in Covenant ceremonies, as we see, this is one of those in Genesis chapter 9. The ceremony begins with a shedding of blood. We looked at this last week from Genesis chapter 15 in the Sunday school hour. Just looking at Abraham's covenant ceremony, where the two, the parts of the animals were separated, and God himself walked through the pieces of the animal and was covenanting to Abraham to say, Abraham, these are my promises to you. And I know that you have, you have obligations to me, but I know you're going to fail in your obligations to me. So I'm walking through the pieces of this covenant, taking on your responsibility and my responsibility, because I know when you fail, you'll need me. I'm taking upon myself and I'm saying that I'm so committed to this covenant that if I break this covenant or if you break this covenant, may it be done to me as is done to these animals. Torn apart, separated, killed. May it be done to me if any portion of this covenant is broken. That's how serious it was for God in Genesis 15. Well, I want you to see how does, how does Genesis chapter 8 begin? In verse 20, it begins with Noah and an altar. An altar of thanksgiving, no doubt, but a shedding of blood of clean animals. An acknowledgement of a ceremony is taking place. We're in the midst of it. We're told that the aroma is pleasing to the Lord. And as that aroma is pleasing to the Lord, his word of promise comes out to Noah. And he says, I will never again destroy the earth with a flood of waters. In the midst of that covenant ceremony, we see God's words of affirmation coming forth for Noah. And then notice finally, we see that there is the giving of a sign by the end of this text. There's a giving of a sign. All God's covenants are presented and ratified for a path of remembrance through a sign. And we're given it right here in the text of Genesis chapter 9. It's an oath. There's a promise and obligation. There's a ceremony. And there's a sign. We've got everything that we need for a covenant being made in here. The question becomes, what's the importance of this covenant? This is not Abraham. This is not Moses. This is Noah. And Noah to every living creature. What is the importance of this Noahic covenant? Well, I want you to see, first of all, God's commitment. And this is the first point with regards to Noah's covenant. God is committed that the order and the pattern of redemption would be in keeping with the order and the pattern of creation. That's the first thing we notice about this covenant. The order and the pattern of redemption would be in keeping with the order and the pattern of creation. Now, why do I say it that way? Well, if you've noticed, there's creation language all over Genesis chapter 9. Notice the way he starts there in verse 1. God blessed Noah and his, and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Well, I give you Genesis 1.28. It starts out with, and God blessed Adam and Eve and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Now, why is that important? It's important for this reason. 
God has never given up on what he started to do in the beginning in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. There's a lot that's happened by this point in Genesis chapter 9, but this is not plan B, this is plan A. This is the very heart and mission of God from the beginning to create a humanity that would be before his face, righteous in glory, fruitful and multiplying, committing all of their lives to his glory and their enjoyment of him. That's his goal throughout all of human history. And he's been moving that mission forward from the very first pages of Scripture. Now, it appears from the average reader that it's taken a pretty significant setback. From Genesis chapter 3, we've had the fall, and then we had Cain and Abel, and now we've had the flood. Things have gone south. This does not look like the world in which God had originally created, nor his hope and aspiration for it. But what we see is that his path of redeeming it, which is to bring it back, is in consistency with his path with regards to creation. He's restoring that which has been lost. Now, all the way through this, you'll see the language of birds. You'll see the language of fish. You'll see the language of every creeping thing. You'll see the image of God in man described under the ordinance of justice with regards to murder. Why are all of those things here? Because he's going back to the foundations of creation. And as Noah steps off the ark on that dry land as the second Adam... And as a new creation begins to burgeon, God goes back to that original plan. And he says, we're moving forward with Noah and his people. The first thing we see is that the pattern of redeeming man is after the pattern of the created order that God started with in Genesis. But here's what's so important to us. And what we need to hear, especially today, is secondly, the covenant of Noah teaches us that it's different from creation in that it's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. Now, why do I say it's a covenant of grace? Well, look here at verse 21. Verse 21 of Genesis chapter 8. Look at what he says. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again curse the ground because of man. Why won't you curse the ground because of man? For his wicked heart is continually wicked, even from the days of his youth. Now you might, if you're thinking logically through the passage, you might go, that might be a reason to bring a flood every day. What about that reasoning makes sense for why every generation doesn't get wiped away? What about that that logic makes sense for why you're now going to cease bringing a flood? Because that was the actual quotation. He's actually quoting Genesis chapter 6. Genesis 6, 1 to 7 gives us that terrible picture of life in the world before the flood when the evil intentions of man's heart were constant and continual. It's the same language. Don't, didn't you think or hadn't you hoped, I'm sure Noah had hoped, that now we've gotten rid of all the bad people. We've gotten rid of all the bad people. We're going to start off with the good people. From here on out, it's onward, upward with the righteous. That's what you would expect as Noah's coming off the ark. And what he says is the very first words out of the mouth of God with regards to this covenant as he's about to make it with Noah, probably looking at Noah, thinking, the evilness of man's heart and intentions are always, I'm not going to destroy the earth again. It's interesting. What does that mean? 
Well, what it means to us is that the flood didn't fix the problem. The flood was a judgment on God because of the problem, but in and of itself, it didn't fix the depravity of man's heart. And now as he looks at Noah and the unfolding of generation after generation, God knows that the wickedness of man is going to continue. And so if it continues in this path, he would have to destroy every generation, but instead he resists doing that. Because he is going to relate to mankind not based on the perfections of what we think, say, and do, but based upon his grace. He is going to relate to us not according to the kindness of our hearts, the goodness of our hearts, the nobleness and righteousness of our actions. He is going to relate to us because of the goodness of his heart and the righteousness of his actions. He is going another direction. And the new direction is the direction of grace. It's the direction of redemption. He's going to give us not what we deserve. He's going to give us grace. And what we're going to see is this is the foundation for how the unfolding of the Scripture actually takes place. But I want you to see a third thing too. The third thing is that the covenant of Noah reveals that God's people are to be different from the world. God's people are to be different from the world. Now, this is a really unique section of the Scripture. There's actually just, there's probably 10 or 15 different theological and practical issues in the midst of this text. So I'm just going to look at a few of these together with you. But I want you to see this key piece. In Genesis 9, we're told for the very first time that it's permissible for men and women, for humankind, to eat meat. Praise be to God. The whole congregation said amen when they heard that. Genesis 9 verse 3, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. It's a testimony of the fact that the world has shifted. Bloodshed is a reality. Fallenness is a reality. He's just said that the animals are going to fear you. They're going to dread you. There is, a, there is a fracture that's happened even between humanity and the relationship to the animal kingdom. We've already seen the killing of animals for the purpose of sacrifice. We've already seen the killing of animals for clothing with Adam and Eve at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Now we see that the delicious meat has now become sustenance For mankind moving forward. But as soon as he allows for the openness of all of the animal kingdom to be for food. Notice the restriction he puts on it. Genesis 9.4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. You shall not eat flesh with its life in it. That is its blood. And every rare steak eater is nervous. Right here, now what I'm going to say about your internal temperature on your steak, I'm not going to go there. I don't think that's the point of this particular passage. When you begin to dig into the context surrounding the nations that were present previous to the flood and Noah as among them, what it is you begin to find is that a part of the pagan ritual of the nations around God's people was the recognition that the blood of animals was used for idol worship. And the drinking of animal blood was seen as a gift of prosperity and fertility. It was a way in which to bring about 
the life that you really wanted. If you wished for something, if you wanted for something, if you desired for healing, if you desired to be at peace with the gods, if you wanted a good crop this year, you're hoping the, the, the interest rates go down and you hope the 401k goes up, and whatever it is the desire was, you might drink or take in animal blood as an offering to God as a fertility or prosperity act. And you see what he's saying here. He's saying the life of the animal is in its blood and the life belongs to me. It's not to be used for you as a purpose to manipulate what you can only get from me, which is life, healing, prosperity, and growth. Now here's what's really important about this distinction. God is opening up a smorgasbord of dietary options here in Genesis chapter 9. And he is saying to the people of Israel, I want you to be, as they're going to become, as you'll see in the dietary laws, I want you to be in the world, but you're not going to be of the world. You're going to eat the things that the world eats, but you're not going to eat them like the world eats them. You're going to be present among them. You're going to be actively engaged with them, but you're not going to be like them in the way that you encounter and engage that which I've given to you. There is going to be a demarcation or a distinctiveness for the way in which you're going to live in the world. You're not going to be gluttonous. You're not going to be drunkards. You can drink. You're not going to be drunkards. You're not, you can eat. You're not going to be gluttonous. You're not going to eat the life of the blood. You're not going to use it in idol worship. You're not going to look to the creature to give you what only the Creator can give you. From the very beginning here, as the new beginning of, the, of mankind unfolds coming out of the ark, is that this people, who's going to move from Noah to Abraham to Isaac, to the 12 tribes of Israel, to Joseph, to Moses, this massive group of people, what's going to happen over the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy is continual dietary laws which will have the purpose of doing what? Making them distinct from the world. And this is exactly why it is that we could call Genesis 9-4 the 1 Corinthians 10-31 of the Old Testament. You remember 1 Corinthians 10-31? Whether you eat... Or whether you drink, you're to do all to the glory of God. You're to do it all to the glory of God. There may, you may sit down to the same meal as the unbeliever sits down to, or as the pagan in the Old Testament sits down to, the idol worshiper. But the, but the means through which you eat it, the aim for which you eat it, the reasons for which you eat it, how you engage with it is entirely different. You are to be distinct. From the world. Now, notice fourthly, the covenant of Noah reveals God's commitment to the sanctity of life. The sanctity of life. This is another key facet in the covenant of Noah. Now, this completely makes sense, right? We need a facet of grace because we're post the fall. And if we don't have a facet of grace, we're going to be in trouble. But we also need instruction and commands about being distinct from the world. Because isn't one of the biggest troubles that any of us face is being in the world and not of the world? Not being close to the world and becoming like the world? That's one of the biggest issues. So we need that in the covenant. But what else do we need? We need a protection for the sanctity of life. We need to have God's opinions, His beliefs, His truths as the ones in which we operate regarding the sanctity of 
human life. And notice how he gives it here in the, the scripture. The principle really starts on the instruction of those previous points. He says, I'm going to allow you uh, to eat the food that the other nations around you are going to eat as they grow and as they develop. You're going to eat it differently from me. But I want you to know that life is in the blood. Now taking that, I want you to see that life belongs to God. Life belongs to Him. You do things the way He says you ought to do them based upon the commands and His prescriptions for life. If life is in blood and life belongs to God, don't drink it, but offer it to the Lord in the way that He commands you to. Well, the same logic is applied here. Notice verse 5. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning, a judgment. From every beast, I will require it, and from any man... From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. Now notice here he goes back. He goes back referencing Genesis chapter 1. We go back to the image of God in man. The definition for what it means to be a human being. The descriptor that the Bible gives us is being made in the image of God. What that means is that you and I are not our own. Not just when it comes to Christ and his purchase of us. That's at even a deeper and more profound level. We are not our own the moment that we are formed and shaped by God in the womb. We are not our own the moment that we are born into life. We are not our own the moment that we pass from this life into our next. Just simply as human beings, we're made in the image of God. He owns us. We are His property. And because we are uniquely His, we are made in His image. If a life is taken by someone else unlawfully, murderously is what's described and what is in context of this passage, then the life of the one who takes it, his life is required as recompense. The meeting out of equal justice. Now let me think through the logic of the situation. Why do I say that murderous violence intent is contextual in this passage. Remember Genesis chapter 6. What was the biggest issue in the culture presented in the text to us prior to the fall? Violence, revenge, taking life. You remember the genealogy even of Genesis chapter 5 and the rejoicing of taking revenge seven times on a person who has done you wrong in order to take life and touting and shouting about the blood that you've shed? This was a violent culture. He comes back to the midst of this violent culture and he speaks a word into Noah now that the world has been cleansed and he says, listen, the mark of distinctiveness is that you are going to be a people of justice who uphold the sanctity of life. You're going to be a people of justice who uphold the sanctity of life. So this whole principle, principle of capital punishment, as we sometimes describe it today, in the Bible, as it's described here in Genesis 9, the motivations behind it are because life is so valuable. 
Life is so valuable and it is reflective of the very image of God himself that when you take it, it's critical that you take it seriously. So much so that you let the punishment fit the crime. That justice is meted out life for life in the midst of the new world order that's being established here by Noah. And so we see sanctity of life is significant. Now, if you can just look at all of these aspects of the covenant, these become really, really critical throughout the Bible, and they're really critical to us. Grace, distinctiveness, sanctity of life. What do we see lastly? Fifthly and finally, the covenant with Noah displays God's unwavering commitment to his covenant promises. His unwavering commitment to his covenant promises. The final piece is trust. The final piece is trust. We can trust God's promises. Now where do we see this? We see it in verse 12. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, this is really important in the nature of the way covenants work, but also to help us understand how God is assisting us in assurance of trusting Him. He wants us to trust Him. But don't you find sometimes as you read His Word and you look at your life, you kind of go, okay, Lord, I don't really know what to do with this. This is not how I thought it would work out. As I'm reading the text of Scripture and I'm looking at what's happened, it doesn't seem to line up. It doesn't seem to square. And so he gives you a sign and he says, trust me on this. Don't operate according to your eyes. Operate according to my truth. A heart of faith that trusts in the promises of God. Now, I know you're going to need help, so I'm going to give you word pictures by which to remember it. You see, this is how it works when we come to that Wedding covenant. That's how we usually think of the word. We think of a wedding covenant. What happens when that couple stands before the witnesses that day of their marriage? Well, they exchange verbal vows. They give to each other oaths and promises. And that's why we call them vows. There's a legal quality to it. It's meant to be binding. This is not a living relationship. This is not a friendship where it could come and go. This is a binding of two lives together in a covenant with each other. And after they say those words, what do they do? They give each other one of these. They give each other a ring. But this is not a ring. This is a sign. This is a picture of what it is that you've said to be a perpetual reminder to you when you forget the words that were said, which is all the time. You need remembrances. You need a way to remember. When you're at the office and you look across the way and you say to yourself, Man, she sure is beautiful. And you see your ring. Remember. It's to bring you back to the covenant promises that you have made. It's meant to keep you in the path of the words. To live in accordance to the commitments. God does the very same thing in the midst of this passage. But I want you to see that he does it completely reversed to how we tend to think about it. Look there at verses 12 to 15. Look specifically at verse 14. 
He says, when I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. Now, let, get the picture. Rain is coming. Can you imagine what it would have felt like to be Noah the moment the first rainstorm came? That would freak me out. Here's the clouds are forming again. Okay, what did he say? What did he say? Is he going to destroy me? Does he know what I did? Right? Those have been the internal dialogue of Noah in those moments. Clouds are forming. He says, but what you're going to see is you're going to see the rainbow, the bow in the clouds. And when you see that, you're going to remember what it is that I told you. But that's not what the text says. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. I will remember my covenant. Now wait. So you mean to tell me this ring is meant to draw me back into remembrance of the covenant that I've made with my wife? Exactly. And when the the bow is in the, the sky and in the clouds, it's not really about me remembering. But it's about God remembering. Now why is that assuring? Oh, it's deeply assuring. When you begin to understand that the sign that God has given in the sky of the rainbow that he won't destroy the earth again, when you see it, here's the process that's supposed to go through your mind and your heart. You are to remember that God remembers what it is that he said to you. That is far more important than you remembering. It is far more important that God remembers what he said and that you're assured that God remembers what it is he said because you can't change anything, but he can change everything. I want you to know, Noah, when you see those storm clouds rolling in and that arch, multicolored, begins to show up in the sky, know that I've remembered. Know that I've remembered. It's an incredible picture. Now, it's even richer when you begin to understand the imagery that he's given. We just said that violence was the main theme that's coming out of Deuteronomy 6 leading up to the flood. Well, when you understand that violence is the main theme, that sanctity of life has been a primary theme within this passage, distinctiveness from the world not being violent like the rest of the world, understanding that blood is found for God and we must treat it with respect and honor, and that this is gracious, you begin to understand why he chose something that looks like a bow to go in the sky. Do you see... The primary weapon at this point in time in history would have been a bow and arrow. That's what it would have been. This is long before guns, long before any other kind of armament. It was violence was perpetrated primarily through bows and arrows and swords. God has taken what man typically uses for destruction and death and he has placed it as a picture of his peace and of his promise to never destroy the world again. He's turning the whole symbol on its head. He's putting, as it were, the bow on the wall. He's hanging it up on the rack. He's saying we're done with the need for that kind of violence. We are taking now the symbol of execution and death 
And we are making it a symbol of life and of promise and of grace. Now when you understand that that's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 9, it makes all the more sense in the world why the fulfillment of the covenant will be a symbol that is a symbol of death that brings forth life. What else is the cross but the first century picture of what death and violence looked like. The, the gruesomeness of that picture and the horror of what it is it stood for among the Romans in the first century would have taken no one by surprise. But the fact that in the midst of a worshiping sanctuary, I'd have a symbol of execution behind me is very unusual. And the people who actually read verses that say, take up your cross daily and follow me and do so with a smile of expectation in following Christ is very unusual. They're like a person like Noah who would look into the sky and see a weapon for violence and smile because it's come to him as a peace and a promise. It's a picture of the kind of thing that God is always about. Of bringing life out of the midst of death. The recognition is that already the narrative is being unfolded in Genesis chapter 9 in the covenant promises with Noah. And even maybe even richer is Sinclair Ferguson suggested. Many scholars have suggested that when you look at the bow you notice That the way in which the ark is shaped is that it's turning not towards earth as if to shoot us. But it's turning towards heaven as if its proper object were to be God himself. That the only way for him to keep the covenant that he makes with Noah is not going to be to trust that we would get the job done. He's going to have to fulfill the justice on our behalf. The arrow of that bow is going to shoot him in the heart in order to save us and make us for himself. That's what's happening on the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The arrow from long ago in the rainbow of Noah's covenant in Genesis chapter 9 finds its ultimate fulfillment in the piercing of the heart of God as he takes our place on the cross. You see, he won't destroy every generation because he has chosen a people for himself and he decided in grace to destroy his own son to save us. To destroy his own son to save us. You see, the powerful unfolding of the Bible with regards to covenant is that you begin to see these themes and these theological realities begin to show themselves over and over in the pages of Scripture and we begin to realize we have a God who has formed a covenant of grace, who has a sanctity of life, who's called a distinctive people out of the world and He has come to take instruments of violence and turn them into instruments of peace. Let me tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ is exactly that. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is everything that Noah is looking to and hoping for. He is the only one who is ever really distinctive from the world. 
He is the only one who is ever really distinctive from the world. He was holy and lived a perfect holy life in the midst of the world. And thus he was ready to be the one whose life should be prized, most sacred, and yet he willingly was led like a sheep to the slaughter in order that our lives might be saved, in order that the covenant might be fulfilled. Do you see, the Bible is teaching us so much about the love of God in the darkest pages and the darkest moments of its history. And it gives us this confidence. That friends, no matter what it is that's going on in the course of your life, no matter what dark, judgment-feeling-like things seem to be happening around you, no matter what missteps, no matter what dead ends, no matter what sufferings, no matter what afflictions are happening, they are all meant to turn us to the one who will bear them all for us, for the hope of redeeming a world from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation. Do you see? His covenant was global. It was for every living thing. And do you know it will be fulfilled? For he tells us at the end of time that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is God. And in the new heavens and the new earth, we will be there, along with our brother David Tigret, who has gone on further into the glory and as we learned last week, was not held back, but was released. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And when you have a covenant promise like Genesis 9, you live like one who leans into the tape as you run. Father in heaven, teach us to lean into the tape as we run by these promises and by the light of this grace. Let Christ be the one who shines through us. And let the glory of His kingdom be that which abides forever. Settle this message deep into our hearts. Renovate us. Strengthen us and release us. Commission us freshly out into your world again to live lives of life, of grace, of distinctiveness, with anticipation and hope, knowing that when we die... And as we die daily, we do so for the life of the glory of the hope that Jesus has defeated that enemy and death has no hold on us anymore. And Father, lift us up to behold these truths and meet us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together. <laughs>